Thank you. Uh... It's a great song. I've never sung that song before. And it's uh, great how Providence fixes uh, a hymn about the offices of Christ for the text we're going to look at today. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. So Hebrews chapter 7. And I know that that's jumping you into the middle of the chapter. And so I want to kind of just, you know, give you a little bit of the context, and then I'll read our text for us, and then we'll take a look at God's Word together, okay? Um, so when you get to Hebrews chapter 7, one of the things that you need to know about the book is that the, um, the audience of Hebrews is very similar to our own today. Uh, he is speaking to a group of people who were gathered at a church, many of whom were genuine Christians, and many of whom were not authentic Christians, but merely claimed to be. They were what we call cultural Christians. Uh, they were the kind of people who would maybe pray to prayer, maybe come to church because they thought it was good. But then as soon as hardships and trials came, they were tempted with returning back to Judaism, returning back to the Old Covenant because they received less persecution. And so that's kind of the context of the audience. Um, now, one of the things the author of Hebrews has been meaning to convey to his people time and time again has been to, to highlight the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. And it took him about seven chapters to get there because there was a lot of things he needed to address to call them to evaluate themselves to see if they truly were authentic Christians so they might find their hope in times of trial in the priesthood of Jesus Christ and in his threefold offices. And so those offices are what I really want to talk about today. The office of prophet, of king, and of priest. And maybe you haven't thought about those as being so vital to your life as you should, and so that's what I want to look at today. In Hebrews 2.17, Jesus is called our merciful and faithful high priest. In Hebrews 3.1, he is called the high priest of our confession. In Hebrews 4.14, he is the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And in 5.11, it said that Jesus' priesthood is according to the order of Melchizedek. And after calling the people then to examine themselves to see if this is truly who they have trusted in, he says this in Hebrews 6.19-20, right before our text, he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and reliable, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so here's this character Melchizedek once again. There are five chapters in the Bible where Melchizedek is mentioned by name. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. And so it's no secret here that the author of Hebrews is connecting all the dots for us so we might see Jesus as he is, as our high priest. And what's also important before we dive into the text today is that the author is constantly making these contrasting relationships with others in the Old Covenant system and Jesus Christ. From the very beginning of the book of Hebrews, you get the relationship of angels and ministering spirits. But Jesus ministers in a far superior way than angels 
for he is the Son of God. In chapter 2, Moses was a, a great servant, but Jesus is the heir of the household, not just a servant. And as we'll kind of see later, even in today's message, the Levites are God's priests in the Old Covenant system, but Jesus is the indestructible high priest, totally different, so much better and greater. When you come to Melchizedek, the relationship is not a contrast. It's not a contrast. Verse 3 of chapter 7 says that Melchizedek is a resemblance or copy, literally in the Greek, of the Son of God. Jesus Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is a copy of the Son of God in some sense. And so it's different from every other Old Testament relationship and office that Jesus gets compared to in the book of Hebrews. And so I want you to kind of keep that in mind today as I kind of give you our outline as we look at how he is comparing, not contrasting, but comparing Jesus to Melchizedek. So I'll give you our outline, and then we'll read the text. So first, we're going to see how Melchizedek is more excellent than Abraham in Hebrews 7, 1 to 2. And then we will see how Melchizedek is more excellent than Levi in chapter 7, 3 to 8. And then finally, we'll see how Jesus is more excellent than Melchizedek in verses 9 to 10. If you don't mind... If you would stand with me as I read God's word this morning, I'd like to read Hebrews 7, 1 to 10. Um, if you would stand for the reading of God's word, I will read it and then we will jump into the text together. Okay, so all that was just a little introduction to get you kind of caught up to where we're at. Hebrews 7, 1 to 10 reads, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham when he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham appointed a tenth of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but made alike the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Levi, who received the priest's office, have a commandment in the law to collect a tenth from all the people, that is, from their countrymen, although they are all descendants from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is written, he lives on. And so to speak, although Levi, or through Levi, even Abraham, who received tithes, has paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his forefather when Melchizedek met him. And that concludes the reading of God's word. You can be seated. So first we want to look, consider how Melchizedek is more excellent than Abraham in verses 1 to 2. Let's kind of dig a little bit deeper into this, those first two verses and see why he is so much more greater than Abraham. When you come to the Old Testament, if you've done any study of it at all, there is a nearly unparalleled agreement to the importance of Abraham. He is the patriarch. He is God's man who God covenanted with to establish the nation. This promise was 
constantly tested by all sorts of external assaults on God's people. These assaults from the human standpoint seem to threaten God's promises, and yet we know from God's word, from the divine perspective, they were but predetermined opportunities for God to display his might, the veracity of his promises, and to encourage his people to trust in him. One example, very early in the life of Abraham, in the earliest days of the Hebrew nation, one great threat were from four Canaanite kings who created a coalition in order to attack and destroy all of their neighboring nations that they didn't like. They killed, they plundered, they took men captive, they stole their food and their possessions, and in their pillaging, they took captive a man by the name of Lot. And ultimately, this would prove to be their undoing. You might remember Lot. He was the nephew of Abraham. And Abraham was God's covenant man. And so by extension, Lot is part of the covenant community. And so to mess with Abraham was more importantly to be messing with God. If you want to turn there, Genesis 14, 14 to 15. Let me read it for you. You can turn there. We'll look there for a little moment. Genesis 14, 14 to 15 says... When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men, born in his house, numbering 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Then he divided his forces against them by night and his servants, and he defeated them and pursued them as far as Habah, which is north of Damascus. Abraham, according to Genesis 14:15, only took 318 trained men from his own household. If you kind of think, why does the text tell us that he only took 318 men? Well, because nobody, nobody should be able to take only 318 men and defeat four Babylonian kings in the greatest empire of the world at that time. But Abraham does it by the power of the Lord. He split his men up strategically to attack his aggressors in the dead of night. I mean, think about this for a moment. These four kings had just ransacked entire nations. They had just killed thousands of fighting men in their wars. They had killed kings who tried to stand against them. They had chased their enemies into tar pits, but one man escapes and he runs and he flees to Abraham. And in the dead of night, Abraham, a man of decisive action, takes his men, splits them up, and seeks justice for his house. You know, the kings would have likely had this big feast to celebrate their great victories with all their trained men around them. And then in the dead of night, arrows would fall from the sky that would blot out the light from the moon. A surge of fierce combat would ensue and the clinging of swords would be all around them. And they would fall by the wayside, bloodied, dead, and dying. When it was all said and done, those four formerly triumphant kings were sent running to the hills by a man they just simply overlooked. They didn't give any regard to Abraham when they took his nephew, and now they're sent fleeing. They lost everything they had gained in their raids. And so, because, and also, even worse than that, the bodies of all their men laid slain all around them, their camels, their livestock, all the things that they had plundered and taken with them, forsaken, left behind. And Abraham claims it all. We often overlook that account of Abraham, don't we? Most people, when we consider Abraham, you only remember that frail, arthritic old man who was too old to have kids, who was tired, who was weary. He couldn't see very well in his old age, and, and that's the Abraham we often think of. 
We picture in our mind this fragile, delicate, elderly man. But that's not what we see here. Abraham was a mighty man. Abraham was a strong man, a fierce man, a man of decisive action and military cunning. Abraham was the covenant man of God, a man to be reckoned with. You can imagine as he marched back in tremendous victory. These four kings had just been defeated, right, by him. They'd been brought low, humiliated, utterly decimated at the hands of this man they'd overlooked. And I'm sure after the gruesome battle, Abraham would have been a shocking sight to behold. You know, in those types of close confines in ancient warfare, men would have been caked in the blood and flesh of their enemies. He was probably coming back from this mighty battle, perched atop a giant camel, sword in hand, a man of great military conquest, a blessed man of the covenant of God with his warriors all around him, his property, livestock, all the people following their fearless leader. And then comes a man in his path who scripture has never mentioned before. Genesis 14, 18, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of the Most High God, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham gives this mysterious man who we've never heard of before a tenth of everything. And what's interesting also with this man, Melchizedek, is we never see him mentioned again in Scripture until almost a thousand years later. A thousand years? Kind of makes you think, doesn't it? Why is it that he doesn't get mentioned again for a thousand years? The next reference is by King David over a thousand years later in Psalm 110. If you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll look at that briefly. Psalm 110. And if you're familiar with the Psalms, this is known as a kingly enthronement psalm. In this psalm, King David is prophetically pointing to the, to the true king who was to come, the perfect king, King Jesus. Again, it's a messianic enthronement psalm that was likely sung by the angels of heaven at Jesus' ascension. I mean, think about the majesty of King Jesus in this text. And right in the middle of this enthronement song, it was read every time a new king was appointed in Israel, prophetically pointing to the true king who was to come, we find this part about the perfect king in Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now you might be thinking, well that sounds strange here in an enthronement song about a king to see that it says he will be a priest forever. You see, this coming man who David was prefiguring was not just a king, but also a priest. And not just any priest, but a priest forever. Now, this may not capture you the way it should. You see, in God's plan through the nation of Israel, no such meshing of the offices ever existed. In fact, it was strictly prohibited. The threefold offices that we sung about even this morning of prophet, king, and priest were separated. Never was a man a king and a priest. Never. You know, God's law explicitly prohibited any son of Levi from being a king because that was reserved for the tribe of David. 
And no one could be a priest except those belonging to Levi. And so those lines were clearly drawn to prohibit any kind of mixing of the kingly and priestly offices. You know, we have examples of kings who tried to act as priests, right? Saul tried it, and what happened to him? God removed his anointing, removed his kingship from his family, and ultimately killed him. Remember King Uzziah, who did the same thing when he... um, What happened to him? He was struck with leprosy. He was forced into isolation. He couldn't be ceremonially clean anymore to worship God. So some severe stuff. And yet here David says, God is about to do something new. Where all the offices were to be consolidated into one person. There will be one ruler and one spiritual representative. The consolidation of power. Where his reign is king and function as priest will never end. The only precedent, the only pattern, the only example for this in God's revelation is Melchizedek, a royal priest from long ago who prefigures Jesus Christ. Melchizedek was a real man, a historical man, who uniquely held the offices of priest and king back before there ever was a nation of Israel. And so he functions as a very unique picture of someone greater than anyone who was merely a priest, who was greater than anyone who was merely a king, there was one who was both. This man powerfully foreshadows Jesus' offices. And so in theology we say Melchizedek is a type. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is given as a way to demonstrate to all of these Jews who are struggling, being persecuted for their faith, That the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament shadows, all the Old Testament foreshadowings, prefigurings, were just types. Now you may be wondering, what is a type? A type is one of the elements of genre in the Bible that it employs to speak predictively. These are seen in the types and antitypes, and that may sound a little unfamiliar to some of you. A type is a real person place or thing in the Old Testament that was designed by God to prefigure something about Jesus Christ. Think about a few of these with me, if you will. Israel going into bondage into Egypt was a type of Jesus fleeing Herod into exile into Egypt before coming back to Israel. And we see that in Matthew 2, 15, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Leviticus 16, the entire chapter, the whole sacrificial system itself was set up to show the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The Lamb slain above the doorposts protect the people of Israel from the angel of death in Exodus 12, 13 to 28. That becomes an annual symbol celebrated yearly in the Passover so people would be prepared to receive God's Passover Lamb. John 1, 29, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Perhaps you remember when God struck the people with serpents for covenant disobedience in Numbers 21. If you recall, in order for them to be healed, Moses was instructed to put a snake on a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by one of those snakes could look upon it and live. Well, that happened to prefigure Jesus' crucifixion, remember? John 3, 14 to 15, it makes that connection for us. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. 
whole offices, people can be types. David is the greatest example of this kind of type. He was the king of Israel, but even he recognized there was a more perfect king to come. You see these? There was a real exodus. There was a real lamb. There, were real, there was a real bronze serpent. There was real priests, real kings, but they were types. Types are real, but inferior, temporary pictures that were predictive. They were pointing to a superior, permanent substance which would fulfill all these things. And so the real, superior, permanent substance is the antitype. And that's what happens when we come to Melchizedek. A real man, a king, a priest, whose real ministry was a type of the true priest king who was to come. So back to Hebrews 7. Who is this Melchizedek? Let's just dig into it a little bit more. How is he foreshadowing the uniqueness of Jesus? He was a king, the text tells us. In fact, it says four times in just the first two verses that he was a king. King of Salem. This comes from the Hebrew word shalom. This was a man who comes from the city of shalom. True peace, abiding peace. And we know from later studies that develop in the Old Testament that the King's Valley is just a kilometer or so away from Moriah. And the hills of Moriah were the place where the city of Jebus would one day be. And the city of Jebus would eventually be called the city of David, the city of Jerusalem. So consider Melchizedek, this mighty man who comes from the city of Jerusalem, the King of Peace. When the writer of Hebrews uses this phrase, most high God, it's a unique phrase. This doesn't mean anything like polytheism. He's not just a God above, like high, above all these other gods. No, not in the least. It comes from the Hebrew use of El Elyon. It's a title that is used of God 52 times in the Old Testament. In fact, the opening words of Hebrews 7 are meant to mirror what we looked at in Genesis 14, 18, which reads, and Melchizedek is the king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. See that? El is a word that's related to Elohim. It's used in conjunction oftentimes in the Old Testament with other descriptive words to especially uh, reference or to shine a light on a particular characteristic of God. Elion means Most High. So used together, El Elyon means the Most High God. And so it's a characteristic that God is above all and everything else. And so it describes his position as majestic, transcendent, preeminent God. This isn't just an insignificant comment when you think about the context it's found in. Think about Lot for a moment. Where he was taken from. Where Melchizedek comes when he meets Abraham on the path. Where were they at? Perhaps you remember the names of those cities. Sodom, Gomorrah. Canaanite at that time was filled with such disgusting sins that God would soon wipe out two of its biggest cities from the face of the earth. And yet, in the midst of Canaan, there is a man of God. A real man of God, mind you. His culture around him was full of sexual sins that even our society hasn't passed in this world. And that may be a surprise to you, and perhaps we're on a fast track to outdoing them. But nevertheless, it's full of idolatry, 
immorality, sodomy was commonplace, pedophilia was no shock there, pagans of the rankest kind. And then in the midst of that kind of immorality, that destitute darkness, God still has his man. And he is pleased to have a king priest who is unsullied by all the world around him. A man who wasn't bubble-wrapped and protected from society, but a man who lived there and was a faithful king-priest unto God. And God saw fit to have that man prefigure his beloved son. Look at his kingliness. The text tells us that his name means king of righteousness. It comes from the Hebrew term melech, which means king. So anytime in the Old Testament you see melech, it means king. And zedek, which means righteousness. Melech Zedek, king of righteousness, that is his name. That's his birth name. And then you notice there it also says, again, king of Salem, king of peace, king of righteousness and king of peace. Can you imagine a man whose name is summed up by those two attributes? Righteousness and peace? And these were true of Melchizedek in a lesser degree, but they reached their consummated fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 17, 14. He is called the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 6. And so this office of priest, of king, of righteousness and peace are prophesied for us in Zechariah 16, or 6, 13, sorry. 6, 13, it says, Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will bear the majesty and sit on the throne and rule from his throne. So he will be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace will be between the two offices. Maybe you remember Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, we read it often going into the holiday year. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Do you see that? King of righteousness, king of peace, a union of righteousness and peace like the world has never seen before. Jesus says in John 16, in me you may have peace. Ephesians 2, 14, he himself is our peace. And in fact, on the day of his birth, the mighty hosts of heaven sang Luke 2, 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among people with whom he is pleased. He is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Romans 5.18-19. Jesus, the King of Peace and Righteousness. A famous missiologist who taught at the Free University of Amsterdam in the 20th century, he studied religions all over the world, and he concluded that there were some similarities. No matter where you went, no matter what people group you found yourself among, there were some similarities among every other religion. And he called these enduring realities. Again, from his experience, he said every single culture, every single religion, every single group of fables and legends, all of them 
have the same consistent expression of the human heart. It's what people want most of all, right? Every religious conviction, whatever it might be, and it was that men desire to have a good king. The human heart longs for a good king. Now, I don't know each of you intimately here this morning. I don't know your life. I don't know your education. I don't know your trials, your hardships in particular. But I know this. You've been there. In fact, you may be there right now. And the Lord knows before you die, there are going to be seasons in your life where you try to fill the throne of king in your own life. You'll feel the social anxiety of political leaders to fill the role of king for you. Perhaps there'll be family. Maybe it'll be your own self for your own future, welfare, whatever it might be. But no matter how hard you try, you're a miserable king. Christianity says that there is an eternal king, and that every single one of us was made for him. And so while false religions, fables, legends in the world have a king, it's because in their idolatrous way, they're expressing the desire, the aim, the summation of the human heart. It's what we want, a true, a just king who can really bring shalom into the world. There is an eternal king that every single one of us longs for his return into this world to bring shalom here to us the true Jerusalem, down from heaven to earth. We were made for this. There is a true king, and we were made for him. Now, I'd like to say a lot more about King Jesus. We need to move along in our comparison here. First, Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Now let's quickly look at how Melchizedek is greater than Levi. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now you may be wondering, who in the world again is this Melchizedek? When people oftentimes get to this text and commentaries and stuff, they get a little bit confused. You probably don't remember his name. I mean, he seems like some obscure character hidden in the Old Testament somewhere. There's been a lot of speculation about him because of verse 3. And since there isn't a lot of revelation given about him, that's left people to kind of wonder, well, is he a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus? Is he a weophany of sorts? I mean, it says without father, what does that mean? Without mother, without genealogy, how can this be? Without beginning of days or end of life, what on earth is this? Is he some kind of God? I say, Abraham met him. David, a thousand years later, talks about him. And that's why a lot of commentators and people have concluded, well, Melchizedek must be some kind of pre-incarnate Christ or an angel or something, because it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. But if we go back into the kind of first century mindset, Scripture helps us here. It will never allow for us to conclude that Melchizedek was anything other than a normal man. You may wonder, well, why? Let's look. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1, and I'll go back to Hebrews, so you can hold there. It says, then bring forward to yourself your brother Aaron and his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to serve as priests to me. Hebrews 5.1, so more immediate to our context, it says, for every high priest taken is from among men. He is pointed on behalf of the people in things pertaining to God. 
And that's why Jesus had to be a man in order to be a priest, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. See the theme there? Priests must be men. Like represents like. He must be a man to be a priest. And so Melchizedek is no exception. We kind of take a step back then and wonder, well, what is the author doing here? You see, he's not emphasizing the type, the man Melchizedek. No, not at all. He is emphasizing the priestly office of a more excellent nature. As a priest, he is without father or mother, meaning he didn't inherit his priestly office through a genealogical line. The author isn't saying that this man just materialized out of thin air and didn't have any parents. This is a Jewish idiom. It is a rabbinic way of explaining that there was no mention of his family ancestry anywhere in the Bible. And you may not see the significance of that, but you have to recognize that in the Old Testament, if you wanted to serve as a priest, you had to be of the tribe of Levi. Your family heritage had to be known. In fact, your family heritage determined your function in the entire nation. If you were in the tribe of Dan or Benjamin or Judah, and you really wanted to serve God as a priest, well, too bad. You can't serve God as a priest in the old covenant system unless you're from the tribe of Levi. In fact, it was more severe than that. It wasn't just one parent. If your father's ancestry wasn't traceable back to Aaron, and if your mother was not a pure-blood, unmixed Hebrew, then you can't be a priest. And so Hebrews 7 is commenting on the strangeness of this appearance of Melchizedek, all based on an understanding of the ancient Near Eastern resume. You know, if you want to get a job in the market in the world today, you're going to have to have some kind of markable skills. You're going to have to have some kind of resume. You have to have a list of qualifications, a, a degree, something you've learned, a, a previous job, some references, right? You've got to prove that you've got the skill to do the job. And it was similar in the ancient Near Eastern world, but in the ancient Near Eastern world, your resume was all about your bloodline, how much land you owned, who you came from, how much sheep and cattle you possessed. That's your resume. That's how people understood and got a grip of who you are and what you could do. In fact, the whole book of Genesis is concerned with this. It's all organized into 10 genealogies. You can divide the whole book of Genesis into a set of 10. Everyone in Genesis who gets talked about has a genealogy except one person, and that's Melchizedek. So what the author of Hebrews is making abundantly clear is that Melchizedek's priestly qualifications are of a superior sort. They aren't limited to his earthly ties. His parents did not make him qualified. God called him and appointed him. That's why he's qualified. It says, without beginning of days or end of life. Again, this doesn't mean Melchizedek is eternal. He's, again, talking about the priestly office. There's no mention of the beginning of his priesthood. For the Levitical office, your name was written down at the age of 30. And that is whenever your office started, right? And you concluded your office at the age of 50 or when you died. You see, the Levitical priest had a 20-year shelf life, and they were done. That was it. That's all they could do. They had a beginning of days. Their entrance date as a priest was written down. 
and they had a clear end, either in death or at the age of 50. But scripture is silent about Melchizedek because the one Melchizedek was to foreshadow would have a priesthood that transcended all of that. No limitations. It doesn't end in death. He has no term limits. Melchizedek had an office that was set, or Melchizedek had an office that didn't expire because guess what? He was of an order that Jesus was meant to fulfill. A priest forever. I mean, you can see in those words a hint of the perpetual, enduring, unending standing and, and direct superiority to the limits of all the ancestry and earthly life of the Levitical order. That our priest, who has entered within the veil, doesn't lose his priesthood and can still represent us even after he's dead. And one reason you can kind of rule out the Christophany idea again there is because it says that Melchizedek was made, quote, like the Son of God. In the Greek, it's better rendered, having been made like the Son of God. You see, Melchizedek is like the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Melchizedek is made to resemble the Son of God. This is a perfect passive. Commentators call this the divine passive. It means that God himself directly appointed Melchizedek to resemble Christ in a foreshadowing way, in a superior way, in a uniquely qualified way. It's by divine appointment. The King of Kings, the source of righteousness, the Prince of Peace, the only one qualified to serve as our eternal high priest. You see, in the Jewish mind, there was a hierarchy. There was a hierarchy. Abraham would have been at the top. And then under him, his sons, the heads of the 12 tribes. And at the top of that tribal list would be the sons of Levi because, well, their role was how you got to God. Their role was how you had communion with the God of the universe. They took your needs up to God and they brought God down to you in your miserable state. And in order to show how much greater Melchizedek is to any priest on earth, a famous priest of his day, no matter what it might have been, he shows that he functions as a, at a higher level. Abraham, therefore, gives a gift to Melchizedek. I mean, consider his greatness. The, the great patriarch gave a tenth of his plunder. And in this act, in the ancient world, the giver of the tithe was acknowledging his inferiority. And the one who receives the tithe, the place of superiority. And the author of Hebrews doesn't do this at the expense of Abraham, okay? He was called the patriarch. He's not just old Abraham, just one of the patriarchs, but he is the, the progenitor of the entire nation, the founder of the Israelite name, the covenant man of God. Everyone who would ever come from his line owed their place to him. So you recognize the exalted status of the patriarch. Well, you have to recognize the even greater status of Melchizedek. He gave him a tenth. There in your English text, it says, it uses the word plunder. This wasn't just he gave 10% off the top. No, the term here is the best of the best. He gave him the best of the plunder, the nicest things, the top of the heap. In the Greek world, this term was used in pagan practices as the portion of the offering that was reserved for the gods. He gave him the best of the best. Look at verse 5. 
And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have a commandment in the law to collect a tithe from the people. That is, from their countrymen, although they're all descended from Abraham. Do you notice the legal elements there? Priests were required by law to take a tithe. And the people were required by law to give a tithe. They didn't give because the priests were more worthy. They were on equal standing. The text says they were all sons of Abraham. No one is superior. No one is better. No one is more deserving. They are giving and collecting not because of status, but because God required it. Look at verse 6. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Melchizedek wasn't a descendant. It wasn't a prescribed law that made Abraham give a tithe to Melchizedek. He did it freely. He did it unsolicited. He did it without divine edict. It wasn't necessary. It wasn't forced upon him. And why? Because of the superiority of the one whom he's giving the tithe to. Verse 7 says, But without dispute, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. Just let that phrase sink in for a moment. He's blessed. He's blessed. Melchizedek blesses Abraham because Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. One more thing. Look at verse 8 in this. It says, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them. On whom it is written that he is witnessed, he lives on. So that kind of ties verse 3 and verse 8 together. No beginning or ending of his priesthood. He permanently possesses his office. He was perpetual. The Bible never records its ending. And yet the Levites all had their dates written down. They had dates they ascended the priesthood and dates that they relinquished their role. It came to an end. So let me tell you something about the importance of this priestly office. You need to know how great a savior your savior is, and you can only know that by knowing how great a priest your high priest is. You've come here this morning with some problems, probably some big problems, maybe some big sins, and you need to know that you have a savior, that you have a priest who is big enough to deal with them. My friends, in your struggles with your problems and your fight against sin, the priest that you need is the one who is eternal and perpetual. And when he blesses, no one, no one can take that blessing away. You see, that's why the author of Hebrews is telling us these things about Melchizedek, because he wants you to know that we have a great high priest who is there for us perpetually. He's more loyal than your most loyal friend. He's more faithful than your closest brother or sister or spouse. He's more dependable than your father or mother. He will never fail you. He is a priest forever. He won't be taken from you by old age. He can't be unfamiliar with you because of communication problems. He can't fail you. He is a perpetual and a dependable priest. We've seen how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Levi. Well, now let's kind of focus in on how Jesus is greater than Melchizedek in our last two verses, verses 9 and 10. 
And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, has paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his forefather when Melchizedek met him. You see, Levi hasn't even been born yet. Isaac hasn't even been born yet. And yet, they are said to have given tithes. There, what is highlighted for us is the importance of the corporate solidarity of God's people. It's put on permanent display that in giving tithes, Melchizedek is representing the fact that Abraham is putting himself under the superiority of Melchizedek. You may wonder, well, how is this possible? How is this possible? Let me briefly explain to you the biblical understanding of representation of headship, of solidarity. You know, there are a number of different levels in the Bible of representation in Scripture. Here we see Abraham represents Levi in a natural way. That's one level of representation, right? Some of this you'd be familiar with, living also in the Western world. You know in a real way the decisions of your government, my government, even either one of us, they have real impacts on your daily lives, right? They represent you. In a similar way, the kings of Israel, when they went to war, the whole nation, the whole kingdom was impacted. When they were Im uh, immoral and when they broke the covenant, the covenant curses came upon the entire nation. That's one level of representation. But there is a reference to natural representation here. So the seed of Abraham, the physical offspring were in his loins. So Levi is in the loins of Abraham in a genetic way. So Abraham is greater than Levi because he's his progenitor. But that's not the only representation that the author of Hebrews is concerned about here. He's already established the typological place of Melchizedek to Christ. And here he is comparing a superior representation. A superior priest to Levi's representation of the people by means of his higher priesthood. You see, Abraham's representation of Levi was great. David's representation of the people, it was great. Levi's was great. Aaron's descendants would be the ones who would represent the people to God. But none of their actions carried with it a one-for-one -one consequence. Think about that. The priests of the tribe of Levi never performed a solitary act that had a one-for-one -one consequence. No good work, no actual sacrifice, no representation they performed had a one-for-one -one consequence on the people. No one was actually um, counted as forgiven because they killed a bunch of animals on the sacrifices. No. No person was ever counted righteous because of Abraham's faith. No. Since Melchizedek is a priestly type of Christ, his representation is a type of Christ, and there's really only one type of representation that is superior to what we see here. You see, Levi represented the covenant people, yes, but not in a one-for-one -one way because Levi's priesthood pointed to something greater. The legal covenant representative headship of one man over many whose acts would carry a one-for-one -one consequence. Now let's back this up a minute. Who should this remind us of? Well, remember Adam? When he sinned, what happened? Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. 
and Adam all sinned, past tense. You see, in Scripture, there's a representation that isn't just passed on physiologically, that isn't just passed on through your genealogy, but there's a representation that is far superior. And we believe, because again, later in Romans 5, we see Jesus acted in this same way as the covenant head of his people, didn't he? In a one-for-one way, he took our sins in his body on the tree so we might be forgiven in him, in his death, that we might be imputed by faith with his perfect law obedience as a man. When Jesus died, his people died. 2 Corinthians 5.14 tells us that. 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body upon the cross so we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And guess what? I say all that to say this. You or I, none of us were ever in the loins of Jesus. And so his representation must be superior. Superior to Abraham's. Superior to Levi. There was, theirs was, as our text explains, physical. It was required by law to make the brothers give tithes to the other brothers. But Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek holds a superior priesthood because Jesus has a superior representation for us. Abraham represented his people in a lesser way. It's still an important and binding way, but he shows his inferiority by showing that Jesus represents by a greater priesthood. It's superior to ancestry. It's superior to genealogy. It supersedes that to a lasting, unending covenant level that can never be shaken or removed. Look back at verse 1 real quick. Melchizedek, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Verse 6, but the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. See that? He blessed him. He blessed the one who had the promises, the covenant head of the entire race. It reminds you of something, doesn't it? Genesis 12, verse 3. God says to Abraham, And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, in everyone, or in Abraham, everyone is blessed. The Gentiles blessed, the Jews blessed. Everyone gets their blessing from Abraham, and guess what? When Abraham, the great blesser, sees the priest of the God Most High, he's overcome with the superiority of that man and he bows down to him, the superior king, the superior priest. I imagine he bows down in reverence to this superior one. The guy who blesses everyone else gets his blessing from the priest of the God Most High. Why would Abraham take this subordinate role? I mean, he gives the top of his plunder, he gives a tithe, verse 7 tells us that. Without any dispute, right? The lesser is blessed by the greater. Why would he say all this? You see, this isn't at all about Melchizedek. You see, this isn't about Melchizedek at all. It's about Jesus Christ. The antitype who is superior, who replaces and surpasses the type. Jesus is the antitype. You think about how significant this is to the early church. They didn't have a completed New Testament yet. They read the Old Testament through the eyes of the Messiah. They read it in a Christian way, and they saw how Jesus fulfilled that which was a shadow, that which was fading, that which was a symbol to the substance, who all find their ultimate consummation in him. To the original audience, the author asks, 
Why would you have a Levitical priest when you could have Jesus? I mean, they're being tempted to turn back to their old way of life to avoid persecution, to the old priestly system. Why would you have a priest like that when you've got a priest like this? I can only imagine how Martin Luther felt when he read this text out loud in a Catholic church. I mean, he would think, why would you want a papist priest when you can have Jesus Christ himself? So what about you? Is Jesus your priest? Is he your priest? Jesus is the only bridge to the Father. There is an infinite chasm between you and the Father due to your sin. Did you know that all the good works, all your church attendance, your intelligence, your generosity, your, your parents, none of that can bridge the gap for you. Your pastors can't bridge the gap. All your prayers, all your Bible study, whatever it is you try to bridge the gap with fails miserably. So my friends, I hope today that you've been introduced to the priest who bridges that gap. And he can do so for you. He's the only one who can open the door of heaven to you. He's the only one who can present you faultless and righteous before the Father. So why is this important to the first century and to you? Why are the dual offices of Melchizedek emphasized? Because again, the author of Hebrews is emphasizing the superiority of Jesus, who is able to bestow all of the blessings and promises of God upon those who believe in him. So if you turn your back on Jesus Christ, you're turning your back on the one person who can bestow the promises of God on you. You know, there's that passage in John 8, 56 to 58. You can turn there if you'd like. We'll be closing with this text. John 8, 56 to 58. What we see here is Jesus is saying, uh, he's having a conversation with the Jewish leaders of his day. And he says these provocative words. Your father Abraham was overjoyed that he would see my day. And he saw it and rejoiced. So the Jews said to him, you're not even 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They sought to stone him because they knew that he was claiming to be God. The author of Hebrews is saying to his Jewish Christian congregation, do you know who it is who blessed Father Abraham? It was Jesus. It was God himself. Do you know where you can get the blessings and promises of God? Only Jesus. And so again, if you turn your back on Jesus, you cannot receive the blessings of God at all because they are bestowed only by him because of his superior priesthood. So I'll say it one more time. My friends, in your struggles with your problems and fights against sin in your daily lives, the priest that you need in your prayer life, the priest that you need to seek in your devotions, is the one who is eternal and perpetual. And when he blesses, no one can take that blessing away. That's why the author of Hebrews is so concerned with telling a hurting and trying people that Jesus is of a superior sort. And they were under persecution by their cultural leaders, the governments of their day, the religious society. Uh, their families had disowned them. They had lost their jobs. They had lost opportunity. They had lost their lives, many of them. 
And they're tempted here with this great conundrum in the midst of life's darkest hours to run back to the old way of life. And they're confronted here that there's a priest whose blessings are perpetual and superior even to Father Abraham's. There's a king who will right all wrongs and will rescue his people in the end. And there's a priest who perfectly, in a one-for-one way, represents us. Our priest isn't a detached stoic. Hebrews 4.14 tells us, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. And that is why we have a sympathetic friend in heaven who is perfectly compassionate because he has endured all the assaults of this world. And so the author is telling you, the one who intercedes for you, he gets you. He knows what it's like to live inside your weakness. He knows what it's like to inherit, inhabit your frail flesh. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He understands you. So when Jesus says, in me you may have peace, he knows exactly what he's saying. He knows that you need this peace and he knows how to get you there. He is our source of true and enduring peace and righteousness. Let me close with these words from a hymn by Isaac Watts. It says this, Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. My guilty conscience seeks no sacrifice beside. His powerful blood did once atone, now it pleads before the throne. To this dear surety's hands will I commit my cause. He answers and fulfills all his father's broken laws. Behold my soul at freedom set. My surety paid the dreadful debt. My advocate appears for my defense on high. The father bows his ears and lays his thunder by. Not all that hell or sin can say can turn his heart, his love, away. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your true and abiding word. We thank you for the power of your son, for sending him to be our priest. Lord, I pray we would continually be comforted by him and trust in him. And Lord, into your hands we commit our day and our lives. In the name of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we pray. Amen.